Good morning. Yeah, let's just take them all. Yeah. Perfect. Well, you can turn in your Bible to the book of Jude, second last book of the Bible. And, uh, and we'll deal with just a few verses here at the end, kind of part two uh, from last week. But just before we do that, I just want to, oh, here we go again. I broke it last week. Is that working? Now it's gone? All right, we'll put that on the button. Not going to happen. Is it true at all? No. Okay, I'm going to have to... One was, there we go. Okay, this isn't going to work very good, so you're just going to have to bear with me. If you're visiting, I have super bad ADD, so standing in one spot is not my spiritual gift. Um, if you, uh, yeah, so Olivia, back here, Olivia, can you wave? Olivia is our new intern. She does not start, though, uh, officially for a couple of weeks yet, so you can't ask her to do anything yet. Uh, she's just here kind of getting to know everybody. She'll be poking in uh, from time to time at the various things that are happening. Uh, and the reason for that is, is I'm leaving for seminary this week, and then Shayla and I are on holidays a week after that, so she showed up and I'm bailing. So uh, that's why we're not going to make her do anything specific. But if you'd like to visit with her, by all means, uh, she's living just next door to the church here, and I hear she likes lasagna, uh, just as a tip if you want to drop something off. I only say that because yesterday I knocked on the door and she said, what, no lasagna? So, sorry, Olivia. Uh, and as well, if you can pray for me this next week as I'm at seminary, um, my ride is sitting right here, and he's going to get up and leave in about 58 minutes, so we got to be done by then. So I'm going to do my best to, to get through this. Um, uh, all the pressure's on you now, Peter. So uh, Let's pray real quick as we start, because I'm super flustered now with this thing, uh, and, and we'll get going. So God, just, uh, would, you just would you just calm my own nerves here? And Help me stay focused on, on the text and what it says to us this morning. God, would you reveal truth to us as we read these words and as we seek to understand what they mean? Would you just reveal truth to our hearts and our minds that we would walk out of here different than when we came? So God, we just pray that you would be at work now. Amen. So uh, the next two Sundays, uh, Nick Cotter's coming back from Calgary uh, to preach uh, for me as I'm away. So that'll be a, a good time. 
Um, and then and then life is going to get back to normal. We're actually going to unroll uh, a five-week give-or-take series through discipleship and our whole plan of connecting every single person who calls uh, Banff Park Church their church home. We're going to connect together with other people so that we can one-on-one -on -one disciple one another the way that we think the Bible teaches us to do that. So you're going to hear a lot about that in the coming weeks um, through January and February, and then we will connect you, and, and you'll see how this is going to work. And, and the hope is simply this, is that we can't grow on our own, at least not very effectively. And so we want to partner with another person that they can help us, that we can help them, and we can disciple one another the way we believe the Bible teaches us to. So that's what's coming. Uh, Jude, we looked at the first kind of part of the book last week, and then we're going to look at verses 17 to 25 this week. But just by way of reminder, in case you weren't here, or in case you're like me and your memory is a little fuzzy, uh, sometimes life gets a little hectic and we can forget, is what had happened is Jude wrote this letter, and you see at the very beginning in verse 1, he says, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And we, we talk about that's the theme of the book, and we'll see that again right at the end of this book, that that same idea that God calls us and that Jesus keeps us. And that is huge, huge information for us in this because the gospel is not about us. The gospel is about God. And that's the theme throughout this book. And Jude approaches it with this humility uh, and this understanding that if we don't understand God correctly, we're not going to understand ourselves correctly. If we don't understand ourselves correctly, we're not going to understand anything properly. And so there was a group of people here, and you see in verse 3 that, that Jude says he, he wanted to write a more encouraging letter, uh, something where they could share their common salvation together. But he'd realized that a group of people had kind of crept into the church unnoticed. And we don't know exactly what they were doing, but the gist of it is that they were taking the grace of God, and, and the scripture says here it was perverting it into sensuality. So in other words, they were taking the gospel, they were turning it to be about them, so that they could do what they want. It can be a difficult thing when we read through Scripture and we see so much. Maybe I'll say it this way. So little of the Scripture is actually about us. So much of it is about God. And when we start to internalize that and when we start to realize that, that should give us the proper understanding where we come face to face with God and we fall on our knees. Much like Isaiah did where we'd say, woe is me, I'm, a, I'm an unclean man, unclean lips. Because God is so good, God is so holy, God is so amazing. And, and there was this group of people that had turned this, and so it wasn't about God's goodness and God's graciousness, it was now about what God could do for them. And that's the danger, and that's the challenge, and that's very much what we're facing in culture right now. That, uh, I say it this way, in Christian culture right now, is we talk with people and they say, well, well, it's okay because God's done this in my life, and so this is okay, and here's why this is okay. But it's not based on Scripture. And, and he talks about this in verse 8, and he says that those people relying on their dreams, they're looking for extra-biblical things. They're, they don't want to study Scripture to find out who God is. They just want God to reveal himself. Matt Chandler says it this way. He says, we're not very good at doing what we know right now. We all want what's next. We all want some kind of special revelation. We want God to just speak to us directly and tell us, here's what you should do. But the challenge with that is God has already done that in his word. It's written for us so that we would understand who he is. And it's our responsibility to study that. And so I used an analogy uh, last week as, as if 
Shayla and I were standing up here on our wedding day. And Shayla was reading her vows to me. And in her vows, she said she would unconditionally love me and that she would always forgive me no matter what happens in our marriage. And could you imagine if then in my response for my vow to her, I say, because you vowed that in, in front of God, in front of all these witnesses, I'm now going to do as much as I can to get whatever I want because it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. You promised me you'll always forgive me. We would never, if you ever hear that at a wedding, you should stand up and say object. I don't know if that's a legal thing anymore, but it can't happen. I would never look at Shayla and say, because you vowed to pledge your love and your forgiveness to me, I'm going to take advantage of that. It's not the way it works. Rather, we look back and we go, I'm going to vow to love you because you have loved me. In fact, 1 John says it this way, we love because what? He first loved us. And so that relationship is this understanding of it's not about what I can get from God. God's already given everything to me through the person of Jesus Christ. God has sent Jesus to the cross to pay for the penalty for my sins and for your sins, and so now we can have eternal life with him. And so it's not a matter of us trying to prove that we deserve to be with God forever and eternity. We can't prove it. We, we, we'll never deserve it. We'll never earn salvation. But God has called us, and he has kept us, as we've read in the text, and as we're going to read again here at the end. And because of that, I'm just going to say to him, because you've loved me, I want to give everything I can to you. Not so that I can earn heaven, but so that I can just understand more and more of who he is. So let's read 17 to the end here. Just these few verses, and it says this. But you must remember, beloved the predictions of the apostles, of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now what's interesting in the text here is I spent all of last week trying to prove to you that this is all about God and not about us. So as Keller says, is God didn't die, or Jesus didn't die on the cross to make us, oh, pardon me. Jesus didn't die on the cross because we were lovely, but to make us lovely. The gospel is about God. While the gospel is about God, it is for us. And so I made this argument last week over and over and over that this is about God, what he has done, and what he is doing. But then you have this natural question in verse 21 where it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. So if this is God's work and what God has done, that seems like a blatant contradiction. And then even later on we read where it says in verse 23, save others. Can we save others or does Christ alone do the saving? And so there, there's these two questions that kind of jump out of the text because verse 1 and verse 24 seem to indicate to us that it's all about God. And obviously that's what I think because that's the argument that I've made. And so I'm going to try and get there and, and explain this as clear as I can to you. But let me, just, let me just remind you of something we read last week. 
Ephesians 2, it says this, For by grace we have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In Acts 16, we read about the jailer who responds to what Paul and Silas are saying, and he asks them in verse 30, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And to which they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Romans 10, verse 9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And those are the more crucial, kind of more well-known texts that we read about God's role in our salvation. And if you notice, all of them are about what he has done for us. But there is a flip side to that coin. There is a responsibility that's given to us, is we have to what? Believe. We can't earn it. We can't prove to God through our good deeds that we deserve salvation. However, God offers salvation to us, and we can either choose to believe and accept, or we can choose to reject. That choice is in front of us. And so in the text here, which we're going to get to in just a minute, when it says, keep yourselves in the love of God, I'm going to explain to you how there's God's part in that and how there's our part in that and how they don't contradict itself, but they're two sides of the same coin. But just before we get there, in verse 17, he says, But you must remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they said, In the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So again, he's making this contrast between those he's writing to, to those who are living their own way. Uh, Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy 4, 3, and 5. He says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for, for themselves teaching to suit their, teachings to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is rampant all through our Christian culture, and I used an example last week that I'm not going to get into this week, but an example of someone who, who thought there's this extra biblical word for them that God was going to do something that, that God never did. And my argument comes back from a quote that I gave to you from Tozer last week where he said a proper understanding of God is crucial to everything because if we don't understand who God is, then we're going to start to believe things that aren't true. And so the challenge that I gave you is if I ever come up here and if I ever tell you God's given me revelation for you that is not found in Scripture, that you should not listen to me because God has revealed everything that we need. That doesn't mean that God can't speak to us, that God can't give us clarity, that, that if we're wondering about a job that we should have or a spouse, future spouse that we should marry, those things. I'm not saying that God can't come to you and make things abundantly clear to you. What I am saying is that God does not reveal truth that is for the broad audience of the church that is not already found in Scripture. And so that's the framework of, of verse 8 here. And so Paul teaches Timothy, and he says to him, look out, because people are going to just start listening to what they want to hear, not what's already found in the Word. And that's so rampant in our day and age. And so the only way that we can combat that is by knowing the Word. If we know the Word well, we can spot the lie. When somebody comes to us and they teach us or they tell us something, they say, well, God's told me this is what's going to happen to you, we can go to Scripture and we can say, you know what? That is not consistent with what it says here, and I know this is true. So we have to study it. And, and Jude is saying there's, there's two groups of people, those that believe and that follow, and that there are those that are devoid of the Spirit following after their own ungodly passions. 
And so that's the context to where we find ourselves in this, in this contrast where he now says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. So let me read to you um, from commentators uh, Doug Oss and Thomas Schreiner here. This is where grammar and translation becomes important. They say this, keep or guard yourselves in the love of God is the main clause of verses 20 and 21, and it is modified by the two participles, building and praying in verse 20, and the participle waiting in verse 21. Christians keep themselves in God's love by growing strong doctrinally, persevering in prayer, and waiting for the Lord's coming. Ultimately, God promises to keep and to preserve the faith of his own people so that no true believer will ever lose his or her salvation. So perhaps a, a less academic way of understanding that is, is John Piper said it this way, you are to keep yourself in the love of God as a means of God keeping you in the love of God because you, his work is decisive and your work is dependent. Prayer is the participle that defines how you do that. Praying keeps yourself in the love of God Praying is the means by which we are kept in the love of God and thus saved for eternal life. And that can sound like, like this confusing paradox is if God keeps me, then how do I keep myself? Well, this is not unique only into Jude. Paul teaches this in Philippians 2.12 when he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you see it there as well. He says, work out your own salvation, and yet it's God who works in you. This can be a very difficult, and, and I think the best way to understand that is, is Jesus himself says it this way in John 15, verse 4. He says this, abide in me as I abide in you. That was Jesus' answer to this understanding of God's role and our role. We have to be connected. We have to stay connected to the vine. Our role is to be committed to Christ through scripture and through prayer and ultimately through waiting for Jesus Christ to come again. That's our role, but none of those things bring salvation to us. Salvation's already been offered by Jesus Christ on the cross to us. If we accept that offer of salvation, then there's a responsibility given to us that now because you understand this, here's how you are to live. And that's why I use the analogy of, of Shayla and I exchanging vows on our wedding. Is standing there looking at her and stating, because you are choosing to love me, I'm going to choose to love you back. Not out of obligation, not to try and prove to you that I love you. I shouldn't have to prove to my wife that I love her. She should just know that I love her the way, by the way that I treat her by the way that I talk to her, by the way that I show affection for her in all areas of my life. And, and it's the same way with God. Is once I understand the depth of God's love for me and that he, he sent Jesus to the cross for me, my response now is not one out of obligation or one out of duty. My response is one out of gracious humility towards God to say, because you love me, I choose to love you. Now, two of those three, I think, are pretty easy, uh, the participles. So the first one, the doctrinally, the, the studying God's word, I think that's, that's at least 
practically speaking, that's very easy. We know we read scripture, we study, we learn, we understand who God is. That's the best, or that's one of these very obvious ways for us to grow. The third one, which we're going to do in just a few moments here with communion, is that we wait eagerly for the second coming of Christ, believing that he is coming again, that he's going to make all wrongs right. The second one, the prayer, I think that's the one that's difficult. Because prayer can be very misunderstood, and especially depending on our denominational upbringings and our various understandings of this, is when we read a verse that says, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. That phrase gets so misunderstood, or maybe I should say it this way, is understood so differently all across the spectrum that I think it can become very confusing and we can say, well, what is prayer? And does prayer change things? Is, is God already made up his mind? Is he already going to do things? And, and we can start to go down this rabbit trail where it's really taking away from the focus of what is really actually happening. So let me try and explain this as best as I can. What does praying in the Spirit mean? Well, the Myers commentary explains it this way. Praying in the Spirit is praying so that the Holy Spirit is the moving and guiding power of that prayer. So the more that I understand God, the more that I study God, the more that I learn who He is, what His will is for um, the world, for creation, and ultimately for my life, the more I become in touch with the Spirit. So Romans 12, I just want to read to you a verse in Romans 12 because this is the question that gets asked so often is, what's God's will for my life? Well, Romans 12, verse 2 says it this way. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what, what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as I understand that, and as I understand what Jude is saying here, is the more I understand about God, the more clear His will will become in my life because I'll understand what He is doing and what He has already done. And so it's not about praying in some kind of a way where God reveals things to me that I don't know. Rather, it's about saying, God, what are you doing in the world through me, through others, and what are you trying to teach me in the Word? And as we study the Word, we start to understand, well, this is what God is saying. This is what God is doing, because this is who He is. Much like any of our relationships, uh, you think about the person that you are most close with, perhaps a spouse, perhaps a child, uh, a friend, whatever it is, the person that you are most close with. The reason that you know them so well is because you live with them and you understand them. Shayla will explain it this way. Is, uh, sometimes we get the opportunity to lead worship together, and she'll be playing piano, and I'll be playing guitar, and she can tell by the facial cues that I have whether I'm, and I don't realize this, but she can tell whether I'm going to repeat a chorus or go to a verse. She can tell if I'm going to do a key change. She can tell all those things just by looking at my face, and nobody else knows. Why? Because we've spent so much time intimately together that she can see and she can know and she can understand those things. They're not always implicitly stated. I don't look over at her and tell her what's going to happen. She can just see it and she knows. And it's the same with any relationship that we have. The closer we grow with them, the more that we understand. So the more mature we are in our faith, the more mature we are in our understanding of who God is, the more clearly we see what God is doing. Not because he's revealed it to us in that way, but because our relationship has shown us, I, I know, I, I see what God is doing in this moment, in this person. 
in my life. Puritan Thomas Manton wrote it this way. Praying in the Spirit is God's appointed means by which we keep ourselves in the love of God and thus are saved for eternal life. If we don't have relationship with God, how are we ever going to expect to understand what he's doing in our lives? And how can we ever understand or expect his will? There was a, a picture I was going to try and show up on the screen, but I wasn't able to find it. But it's, uh, I've said this before, but it's one of my favorite little cartoons. And there's this little man, uh, ne- I don't know why he's little. The picture is little. He's a man kneeling beside his bed. He's got his hands folded, and he's praying to God, and he's saying, God, I don't know what to do. Would you please tell me what to do? And then the next little slide shows, and he's got his Bible closed on his nightstand. And that's the picture of it, is that God's already told us what to do. God's already told us, no, it's, it's not about the situation that we find ourselves in. Rather, it's about finding a deeper relationship with Christ. And as we find that, we will start to understand the various situations in our lives. But too often what we find ourselves doing is we find ourselves in a circumstance where we say, God, I don't know what to do, and that becomes more important than the relationship with God. And God's saying, no, I, I don't want to answer that question, at least not yet. I want to be in a relationship with you. I want to have intimacy with you. And when you have intimacy with me, then you'll start to see and understand. Now, let me just clarify. That does not mean that we'll never doubt, that we'll never worry, that we'll never wonder. Is very few super important decisions in my life have I been 100% convinced of. I've thought it's the right thing to do. I've thought this is what God has been leading, directing, and guiding towards, but I haven't had God go, Greg, this is what you're supposed to do. It's more this innate sense that I think this is what God has called me to, that this is what God has prepared me to, that this is what God has wanted. Now, sometimes I've misheard that, and sometimes I've done things or said things, or gone places that have blown up in my face, and I've had to repent of those things. Sometimes we look back in the past, and we go, oh, if only I knew what I know now, I wouldn't do X, Y, or Z. But that's the reality of a relationship with God. It's about maturity. We make mistakes. We think we understand things, and then perhaps we don't. And so the way that we can understand what praying in the Spirit means is not that the Spirit just, just, consumes our minds and our hearts and he just tells us what to pray but rather that as we understand who God is we start our let me say it this way our prayers turn less about us and more about God is the more immature we are the more immature our prayer life will be if we wake up in the morning and we go God I need God I need God I need God I need God would you do and then that's our prayer life that's very indicative of our own relationship with Christ and as we mature And as we learn more about him, our prayers will start to be less focused on ourselves and more focused on the people that we love, the world around us, the culture around us, the community in which we live. And we'll start to pray that way because we know that God's love is not just for us, but God's love is for them and God has purpose and meaning in their lives because he's created them and he loves them desperately. So I think that's what praying in the Spirit means in this. And then really quickly before we get to the end of this section of verse 23, where it says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. That seems like a blatant contradiction, is if Christ is the only one, if his finished work on the cross is the only means of salvation, which I think is very clear in scripture, then why would it say it this way? Let me, let me read to you from what John Calvin says. This is in one of his very, very early writings, 
he talks about how he realized that he was on his way to hell because of his sinfulness. And then he says, because of the faithfulness of someone telling me the gospel, it was as if they grabbed me as I was falling towards hell and they snatched me out of the grips of hell. And I think that's a good way to understand that. Is not that by me telling somebody I'm saving them because I didn't do anything. Christ did that work. I'm simply the vessel that's telling them about how they can come to faith. Again, the gospel isn't about me. The gospel's about Christ. And the more I understand that, the more I will share that with people because it's not dependent on me anymore. In fact, the more mature we get in this, the more we'll understand, um, you know what, it doesn't matter how someone responds to my sharing the gospel because I'm not the one doing the work, but God is. And so I think so often as I was growing up, I remember maybe some of you can relate to this. I had a, a very crazy youth pastor who dropped a bunch of us off in the Winnipeg Mall and said we weren't allowed to get back on the, no, this was in Vancouver on a mission trip. So we're all like 15, 16 years old, downtown Vancouver, dropped us off on the bus and said you cannot come back on the bus until you've witnessed to three people and shared the gospel clearly with them. It's a good, it's a, it's a good learning experience. But I, those were very nerve-wracking moments because I internalized that I have to that this is about how I can present it. This is about what I can do because if I don't make it clear, how are they going to understand? And then it all becomes about me and not about God. The reality is, is we need to be faithful to tell the gospel to people, not because we know it so well that they will have no argument against us. If you've ever tried to argue someone into the kingdom of God, it doesn't work very well. However, if we love people, and because we love them, we want to share with them the only way to salvation. God will start to work. Or I should say it differently. God's already started to work. God will continue to work in their lives. Now, I've shared the gospel with people where I thought it was irrefutable. There was no way they could have any kind of argument. And they went, thanks, okay, see you later. And I've had moments where I've stumbled and been not sure exactly what to say or how to say it. And you walk away from that and you go, man, there's no way they could possibly ever have understood what I say. And then you find out later that they came to faith because God's the one at work. It's because the gospel is about God. It's not about me. And so my role is not to literally save someone from hell. My role is to show them how to be saved from hell through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let me just read to you to close these last verses before we do communion. This is one of the most beautiful texts in Scripture, I think. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Jude ends by simply saying it's about what God's doing. He can keep you from stumbling. He can hold you. He can be at work within you. And he will present you blameless. We cannot. I've said it a million times. I'll say it one more time as we close. The gospel is not about us, but it is for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for the reminders of this text to us. God, would we be a church that studies the word so that we can spot error, so that we can teach what is right and we can understand what is right and we can pursue a relationship with you 
in deep intimacy. God, would we be a church that prays for one another? Would we be a church that prays for your your will to be done in our lives and in the lives of those around us? And as we're just about to do here in a moment, would we be a church that eagerly awaits the second coming of Christ? Where we will get to go and be with you for all of eternity. And as Paul says, nothing compares with that. So God, as we consider these words from Jude, as we go from this place in a few moments, would we constantly be being reminded of how the Bible is about you, about how the gospel is about you and what you have done for us and the love that you have for us. So God, may we understand that we love because you first loved us. Amen. I'm just going to invite the guys to come up who are going to help with communion.